In the month of July, our focus here at the Church of the Cross will be on the New Testament letter of James. I have posted some notes on the website about the authorship and context of this letter, and I won't repeat them now. The title of the series of four sermons I call The Law of Liberty, How Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment. We know that law limits, law burdens, law constrains, law subdues, law oppresses. This is our experience of law. But is there a law of liberty, a word that frees us to be all that we're meant to be, to perfect us, to bring us to the goal and purpose of our lives. As Abraham Lincoln said, liberty is not doing what you want, it's the power to do what is right. Obedience to this law will bring us transformation and not loss. James says there is such a law and James shows us how to receive it. James writes to us across 20 centuries with a deeply faithful wisdom. Can mercy triumph over judgment? If we are to be indicted for sin, is there any other verdict but guilty? We are condemned by our own thoughts and actions. Is there any pardon or reprieve? Can a just God in a moral universe put up with the likes of us? Yes, says James. Mercy does triumph over judgment. And he shows us how and invites us to appropriate the mercy of God. Today my topic is how we access this mercy from God and how we continue to grow in reliance on it. The title of this sermon is Living in Faith by Wisdom from Above. In our second reading from chapter one of his letter, James warns us to accept no substitutes, but to go for God's good and perfect gifts, which are heavenly and come down from the Father with the steadiness of sunlight or moonlight but without their changeability. There is no night and day with God's perfect gifts, no waxing and waning, no cloud cover and eclipse. God's gifts are always on offer, writes James. So do not worship the stars and believe that they control your life. Worship the Father, the origin, the source of all light. Do not worship science, but worship the creator of the universe. God's gifts are not only good, says James, but they perfect us. That is, when we receive them, we are empowered to fulfill our purpose in being here, to grow in love and service, in creativity, in forgiveness, in assisting and communion with God as God intended us, as friends of God. But what is this good and perfect heavenly gift? 
In verse 18 of our reading, James changes the metaphor from heavenly light to gestation. Of his own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So God's good and perfect gift is the word of truth. Not only the truth about God, not only the truth about our sinful need of his intervention and help, but the truth about how we are to live in him after the example of his son, Jesus. And this word of truth produces in us a new birth as God's people, dedicated to him and called to share in his work of redeeming the world. But, says James, we need to become quick hearers, putting away rampant wickedness. That is the wickedness that struts and boasts and parades itself to receive with meekness the implanted word. So now James employs a third metaphor, that of the parable of the sower, in which we need to become good soil for the word of God sown by Jesus. Heavenly light steadily shining down, gestation leading to new birth, seeds received by a soil willing to let them sprout. So James describes how we are to appropriate God's good and perfect gift, the word of truth, the gospel. Later in the letter in chapter 3, James returns to the gift God gives us, but now he refers to it as the wisdom that comes down from above. Nowhere, curiously, in the letter does James make reference to the Holy Spirit, but in his discussion of the wisdom that comes down from above, it becomes clear that he personifies wisdom to fulfill the ministry of the Holy Spirit producing in us the Holy Spirit's fruit. He writes, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, an important word in James's letter that we'll talk more about later, and sincere. The wisdom from above, thus personified, produces a harvest of righteousness as those possessing it make peace in a conflicted world. What James understands, James understands wisdom as God's good and perfect gift. Not so much wisdom as a series of aphorisms, a series of precepts for action and warning for avoidance, like a fool and his gold are soon parted, but wisdom rather as a power that transforms the character of the one on whom it is bestowed. It is a gift to be received, not human reason meditating on experience, like much of the wisdom literature. So that's our first challenge from James. Are we ready to be born anew by the word of truth? Not just once at an evangelistic crusade, but again and again each day to receive with meekness the implanted word, to acknowledge that every really good and perfect gift is from God and comes down as wisdom, or if you will, the Holy Spirit, to make us what we cannot make of ourselves. If we're not willing, then James has very little more to say to us because he's writing a spiritual message 
for those who wish to grow wise in the Spirit. But James is merciful. He says, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him or her. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. So James shows us how to live by wisdom from above and not rely on our own resources. It is this prayer of faith that James goes on to talk about in chapter 5, this asking in faith with no doubting that should characterize the wise person's life of prayer, the wise person's approach to God. But the prayer of faith, asking in faith with no doubting, seems to us on a hot Sunday afternoon to be a tall order. We live in a society in which the Christian faith is under constant intellectual attack. We live in a chaotic world where right does not always or even often prevail. When we pray, we regularly find that the outcomes we ask for and long for don't seem to occur. So how do we practice the prayer of faith? We do so, I think, by asking for what God has promised to give us in the conviction that he will keep his promise. It is possible, and we should be open to the exercise of all of the gifts of the Spirit, that some Christians have a word of knowledge about what God is up to in a situation and can pray the prayer of faith in that particular knowledge. But by and large, we look to Scripture to learn the promises of God. What are those promises? Here is my best attempt to summarize them, and I would welcome your additions or corrections. What really does God promise us? God is with us, always, in every circumstance. In the end, God wins. Nothing that resists him will prevail. Every sin can be forgiven, but the sin of rejecting the means of our forgiveness, which is Jesus. Our destiny is fellowship, communion with God forever. By his power, we now are being made whole. All that is good and perfect is from him. He loves all his creatures and seeks them as though they were the only one in the universe. He invites us and enables us to work with him to accomplish his goals. He works in all things for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Now how God keeps these promises is the gospel the great story of salvation. But these are what and all that he promises. And the prayer of faith is made in the sure conviction that God will keep his promises to you and to me. So James writes in chapter 5, Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. God will be present to the sufferer in every circumstance. God can make some good come out of our suffering. Will God end it? Maybe not. 
not promised. But prayer reminds God of his promise to be present and to work together for good in every situation. And he will keep that promise. Is anyone cheerful, writes James? Let him sing praise. God is the author of all that is good and perfect. Therefore, cheerfulness based presumably on success or good fortune should be turned into thanksgiving, acknowledging that it is God who is responsible. Is anyone among you sick, writes James. Here James prescribes prayer and anointing by the elders of the church. We know that by God's power we are being made whole. Sickness and death threaten that wholeness. But we know that God works for good in all things. James writes, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. This statement I think is intentionally ambiguous. Will the sick Christian be brought back to health in this life and raised up from his sick bed? Or will he or she be saved from eternal death and raised up in resurrection at the last day? But in either case, God's promise will be kept. And we intercede for healing for the sick with faith, but not knowing whether the outcome is of healing, of healing is ultimate or involves a cure in this life. God promises to forgive sins, so writes James, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. James goes on to speak of the great power possessed by the prayer of a righteous man and cites the example of Elijah. In context, a righteous man, and Elijah certainly wasn't sinless, is one who is praying in faith, relying on the promises of God. In Elijah's case, it was revealed to him that God would judge Ahab's idolatry, and it was a promise that God kept. So, writes James, we are to ask in faith for wisdom or the Holy Spirit, knowing that God has promised his presence to those who seek him. Now, I don't know about you, but James's teaching makes me want to review my prayer life. Do I need more attention to the promises of God, claiming them in faith? Do I need to be more humble and tentative when I'm asking God for what he has not promised? Indeed, maybe I should simply hold up situations in prayer to which the promises of God do not clearly apply with respect to a specific outcome and ask God to work his will without my incessant suggestions and naggings and demands. Notice, friends, what God's promises do not include. A long life. Physical perfection. Good health. Professional success. Popularity. A peaceful and carefree retirement financial security, that your love will be reciprocated by anyone whom you truly love, marriage, or the success of the sports teams you root for. How much of our prayer life is centered in these areas trying to cajole or wheedle favorable results out of God? 
So James writes, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James, I think, would call this worldliness, and we will consider his teachings on this in two weeks' time. But meanwhile, the law of liberty invites us to live in faith by wisdom from above. This is how mercy triumphs over judgment in our lives and in our world. Amen.